Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 112 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Professor Adam Hart. Adam is a scientist and broadcaster and the author of Unfit for Purpose. In the next hour, you're going to learn how our evolutionary history has left us unprepared for the world we now inhabit, how evolution can explain our imagination, fake news, our social media addictions, and just about everything else we experience, why war and conflict pose such a difficult question about whether or not we have evolved to be violent, why the potency of fast food, drugs, gambling and digital devices pose such a difficult challenge for us and so much more. Now, if you haven't noticed, increasingly this podcast is me diving headfirst into topics that frankly, I'm entirely unqualified to fully understand. But thankfully, this time around, Adam is on hand to explain this super interesting and this super nuanced area with an amazing clarity. It's a really interesting conversation and it's one that I think you're going to enjoy. But just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. And do me one more favor, if you can, even now or later on in the day, go to YouTube, search my name, find the channel and do me a big favor, just click subscribe there. Um, These podcasts come out once a week, as you know, but increasingly I'm putting more and more content out on YouTube more frequently than once a week. And so if you really want to stay up to date with these kind of conversations and this podcast that is definitely the place to be but in the meantime here it is episode number 112 of life and lessons with adam hart So, Professor Adam Hart, thank you for being here. Uh, Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because before I even picked up your book, I just had this feeling that something wasn't right. There's all these underlying tensions within us that make at least me and I'm sure those listening feel like we're just not equipped for the world that we currently find ourselves in. And so, before we dive into some of the specifics, um, what are the biggest factors from evolution that are causing that feeling that I have that I'm just disconnected from where I should be yeah I mean it's it's a big question isn't it and I think you're right I mean let's look at my situation right now right I'm sat very safe in a in a dry house you know my my children are being educated at a school that's just next door to me um I've just driven to the shops didn't have to go out and slaughter anything or pick or grow anything. And, and it's all very, very convenient. And, and yet, you know, in the back of my mind at the moment, there's these, there's these things going around, there's these pressures and tensions and stuff. You know, we live in this very comfortable world that really should be an absolute paradise. And yet, you're right, there is an unease. That, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. Sort of there's, there's an uneasy tension with that. Um, what is it about our evolutionary past that, that brings that about? Well, I mean, very simply, I suppose, the world that we evolved to to be in, and we are very well adapted animals for for, for the world around us, but that, that world has changed. And the thing is, it's changed incredibly abruptly. So, you know, 200 years ago, nobody was worrying about social media. Um, someone could have invaded another country and we wouldn't know about it for another week. And then, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be directly affecting us because it was thousands of miles away to, to, to use a, a, a sort of a recent story. Um, we have constant 
woes that come about from the structures that we produce because we have to pay taxes and we have to find money and we have to have shelter and all these sorts of things. So the, the modern world has provided this kind of comfort blanket in a way, but that comes with a price and that price is often enhanced stress, information overload and everything else. And I think those things sort of pile onto us and you know, our brains are not really wired to deal with thousands of, of people they're not you know we are very immediate creatures <laughs> evolution it isn't isn't a planning uh, thing you know we're evolved to take care of what's in front of us and put the fire out now we're not we're not we're not great at, at planning actually and, and you can see that in, in a great deal of what we do we're very very good at sorting out ourselves and the people immediately around us right now anything else takes a, a considerable amount more effort so i think all of those things kind of lump together and most of the time we function pretty well of course you know most of the time we, we blunder our way through but but i think a lot of people are finding increasingly now that that some of those pressures and tensions and things are, are starting to pile up for them and and we don't necessarily have the tools to overcome them um, we, we need to work to overcome them and we need to think about how we can we can make ourselves better and so I, I hear you say about 200 years ago, things were very different, um, which is, of course, a, a tiny amount of time in the scale of evolution. Um, are you able to trace back roughly when it was that society and the modern world kind of overtook what we were prepared to deal with? Is there a point in history where it, it turns? I think there is. And it's a point that happens at several different points across the world. But probably the biggest thing that, that's occurred to us in our in our social history was the the development of agriculture, because... That allowed us to develop from relatively simple, quite small communities and, and societies that would have been mostly involved in hunter gathering and so on and didn't need to do too much planning and wasn't, you know, really wasn't involved in building city states and all of that sort of stuff and all the politics and society that comes with it. Having agriculture develop sort of 12 to 15,000 years ago, although it, it varies throughout the world, that, that was a very, very big step in developing what we would think of as the modern world. And, and you can see the development of that. You know, we, we kick off then really and and suddenly we find ourselves among the sort of ancient Greeks and the Romans fairly quickly and, and, and all the other civilizations that, that that we know about. And then, of course, we go through into sort of the Industrial Revolution, which was the, the next big revolution in terms of how we organized ourselves. And that allowed us to develop even further into what we would think of as a modern state, um, you know, probably in, in many respects, not that different from what we see now in terms of the big issues. And then, of course, there's this third revolution, which is the information revolution. And that has happened incredibly quickly. Um, really, I, 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 I think it's probably fair to say the last 20 years, really. I mean, you know, 1994 was the sort of uh, often taken as the date of the development of, of the Internet and so on. That's what 30 years ago or so 35 years ago whatever it is my math gets a bit sketchy towards the beginning of the year what is it yeah it's about 30 odd years ago isn't it um that's really the 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 modern world as we know it now has really taken shape over the last few decades but of course it's had these other these other revolutions before so yeah we're really talking about a sort of transition of perhaps 10,000 years and then sort of two to 300 years and then and then it's collapsed even further into two or three decades and and it's that that pace of development is very difficult for us to to take to take account of so i was born in 1995 so after the wide adoption of the internet and so to lead into my next question this is an interesting um tightrope that i walk in as much as evidently much of what i do is um is evolved right but then i've grown up in a world where this third wave of kind of environmental changes exists i feel like 
I'm in control. You know, I feel like the decisions I make are logical and I'm quite lucid. But how much of that is actually true? How much of our actions are genuinely free will and how much of it is just some kind of root deep within us that's guiding us to act and say and think in certain ways? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really big question, sort of philosophically, practically. But now, of course, it's become a really important question from a societal perspective because i suppose in one in one one aspect of free will i suppose it's, it's fairly trivial so for example we think we're free to do what we want but you know i drove to the shops earlier and i drove on the left hand side and i stuck to the road um i could have driven across the field i could have driven on the other side of the road there was you know i had free will i suppose but of course that free will wasn't really being exercised and you know, i went into the shop and i i'll be honest with you i didn't necessarily want to pay for the goods but I, but I did, right? <laughs> because that's the way it works. So I think quite a lot of our everyday things, we we think we're making decisions and choices, but we're not. We're kind of being, if you like, driven along a certain route. But yeah, more subtly than that, we've seen recently, certainly in the past five years, and 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 yeah, arguably in the last few even more, uh, the influence of of misinformation and fake information in terms of how we think. So again, we think that we're free to think the way that we are, but it, but in fact we're not, and we know that that algorithms exist that can that can manipulate the way we think very very easily and it's th that is a scary development you know the information the information revolution is is a phenomenal thing right? it's an amazing time to be alive in terms of in terms of gaining information but it allows those tools to exist that allow more manipulation of the way people think and we've seen that with i mean with the covid conspiracy theories we've seen it with with sort of fake information um foreign powers using fake information to manipulate votes i mean it's it, it now seems to be beyond beyond question that that uh, there was russian engagement in the brexit vote for example we know that there's been uh in, engagement in the same way in in the us and that that's that's more scary because people that think those things will think that they think those things because they're thinking sentient human beings that are capable of rational thought and free will and they've taken all the information and they've made their own decision and they've been played like a like a, a fiddle <laughs> because because we now know enough about people and the way they are and how to push their buttons that we can make it seem like it's a free choice and it's not and that that that's quite scary um and that of course latches into all kinds of evolutionary adaptations that we have um we we want to belong we want to we have this in group out group thing all of us sort of societal all of our intellectual structures that have de that have evolved for us to be able to live in in societies can in the right situation perhaps be be used against us and and i guess that's an, an aspect of the modern world that that's quite scary um yeah fake information and, and stuff isn't isn't new um as soon as people were were printing things they were i mean people have been telling lies for for a long time right but, but what's new is the ability to be able to tailor it so specifically and to reach so many people in such a nuanced way with 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 big data and you know that comes about because we because we invented computers and that's another adaptation right our massive brains and fabulous hands they, they're the things that get us into trouble time and time again so given that evolution happens so slowly and yet these algorithms and these entities with ill intent move so quickly do you think that the trajectory we're on with things such as fake news we'll dive into that more later but just more generally being able to kind of hack for want of a better word the human condition through science is that reversible or are we just stuck on this path now because we will never evolve our way out of it <sighs> We're, we're not going to evolve our way out of this, no. Um, uh, for, yeah, evolution requires variation, and um, there's plenty of variation in the human 
uh, intellect, but it also requires that variation to be linked to reproductive advantage and for offspring to be to be more uh, able to profit more in that environment than others. And, and that's just not the world that we live in now. Um, so no, we're not going to evolve our way out of it, unfortunately. But we 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 have the tools, right? We have the intellectual tools to be able to um, think our way out of it, which I suppose is a is a product of our evolution. Um, what we don't have currently are necessarily the the mechanisms to to get those tools working and i think yeah we see it a lot we see we see people who you know simply can't think critically and that's that's not a fault i mean well i suppose it is a fault but it's not their fault um you know it's a it's a fault perhaps of education and, and the way that we think about things um i, I saw someone whose whose intellect i admire greatly a, a, a philosophy phd and you know very deep thinkers sort of posting on twitter the other day saying i think i've inadvertently shared some fake information over the last couple of days i've been back, looking back over what i've been saying and it's i don't think it's true now um that's the other problem with the world now right we're, we're all shooting from the hip all the time um people people want their opinion and right now and now it's recorded so whatever you say is down there and and then it gets propagated and, and that's a very that's a very different world from sitting down in front of a campfire and sort of discussing ideas i mean that's one of the things that i think we we've lost to a certain extent i see it with student groups when we go away on on field trips and things you know people are more reticent to sit and and share their opinions because suddenly everyone's jumping on them you know when i was in my 20s you could sit down and <laughs> have a few drinks and talk total nonsense and people would challenge you with it and you'd have stand-up rows with friends and stuff and you'd all be mates at the end of it no one was recording it or posting it no one was judging you or cancelling you or anything else and that's how you would form opinions now we've to a certain extent lost that or when people try to do that through social media and so on that that opinion forming itself becomes problematic and i think we're in this kind of stage where developing critical thought is is difficult, but you know we've never, we've never needed it more than we do now, right? The world's the, the world's never been a more complex place, I guess, than it is right now. So, uh, yeah, we 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 need to think our way out of it. Unfortunately, evolution is not going to help us out this time. So, just a final bit of context saying, and I want to return to that that tightrope that I've been walking between obvious evolution and the environment I've grown up in. Because in preparing for this conversation, I did as is the case of every guest, the most basic of research, and then just rely on you to carry it. I've been reading about the difference <laughs> between um, evolution and environment and how um, the scientific world is able to discern the difference between, okay, this is a trait which has evolved through, um, you know, X, Y, Z, whereas this is just a cluster of people who are responding quite immediately to their environment. How does science discern between the two? Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of question that becomes much easier when you're dealing with non-human subjects, um, partly because the question is usually simpler, but also because you can do more experiments. But, but fundamentally, evolution is a genetic process. Evolution is simply the change in genetic frequency over time. Um, so when you're talking about evolved qualities, what, what you mean is that, that those traits have come about as a consequence of a genetic foundation that has then been selected for through generations to have some advantage to the people that the individuals that, that have that particular genetic makeup and of course they pass that on to their their offspring who pass it on to their offspring and fairly soon sometimes actually quite dramatically in in some experimental systems you can end up with everyone or every individual having that quality so so scientifically you know evolution is a very um, well-defined process that that is inherently genetic of course, what you can have in human societies is much more complex behaviours and behaviours that, that that aren't. So, for example, I mean, language is a good one, right? We're talking in English. It's my native language. I'm, I, I assume it's yours, but it may not be. Um, but 
lots of other people around the world, of course, don't speak in English. It's their native language. They speak in all kinds of other languages. And I was in Namibia recently and the people there um, that I was talking to uh, speak a language that has lots of clicks in it. Um, so they they have this kind of sound, but they, they don't just have that. They have several different clicks that mean different things. And we, we had lots of fun with various uh, <laughs> trying to say various words. Language is a trait that's shared environmentally by people that, that now less so in, the, in, a, in a more mixed world, but 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 grew up and, and developed that language together. However, the ability to be able to have language and the ability to be able to speak and the mental ability to be able to to pass that language on, of course, is an evolved trait. So we have this interesting thing where we have, you know, language as a sort of module is evolved, but the software that goes into it is is cultural. So there can be these interesting mixes. But yeah, fundamentally, when we're talking about something being evolved, we we absolutely assume and often haven't proved that there is a genetic underpinning to it. Something else I came across in my research in niche corners of the internet were those who, so whether it's ideological, <laughs> whether it was um, whether it's through religion or ideology, there are naturally those who don't believe in evolution. They dismiss it. How have we got to a point where we have evolved ourselves to a certain degree that we can now have abstract thoughts to dismiss the evolution that allowed us to have those thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a brilliant thing, isn't it? I, I guess the first thing, hang on, I'm just going to have a quick cough. So I guess the first thing is um, evolution itself. So what, one of the biggest sort of criticisms you see thrown against it is, well, it's only a theory. Um, that's because people don't understand the way that, that science uses the word theory. Um, theory in everyday use generally means something quite hazy and waffly and usually a little bit kind of, yeah sketchy right well theoretically we can put that fence up this afternoon but probably not right it's that kind of that kind of sense but actually in science what theory means is a, is a really well evident set of, of observations and hypotheses that collectively form a very robust explanation for a particular phenomenon right so theory has a different meaning so that, that's the first thing i mean and the second thing is there is such abundant evidence for evolution that that it's it, it's it, it's pointless to even begin explaining it to people but but if if if, if they want then simply uh, we can look at the transmission of, of the SARS virus that causes COVID. We can look at um, antibiotic resistance. You know, these are everyday examples now of, of evolution in action. And then I guess the, the third point is that, that yeah, we, ha we have this fantastic capacity for abstract thought, um, which allows us to come up with staggering things i mean the human brain is 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 unbelievable when when you actually step back it's just kind of it's 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 staggering to even get your head around your own head <laughs> even having that conversation ends up in an afternoon shivering in the shed right because you know so so yeah if, if you put something in front of someone and say right this is this is i don't know this is a this is a mobile phone and and they'll look at it and go no it's not and you can say well okay i can prove to you that it's a mobile phone because look, look at how it functions and everything and and they'll go no no I, I i just i just don't believe it and and at that stage you really have to well you really have to to wonder just uh, what what the limits of human <laughs> sort of human abstract thought is because we're, we're able to internalize things that are completely untrue and believe them very very solidly just as we are able to internalize things that that are manifestly true and uh, and believe them very solidly and it's yeah that 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 is a very interesting component of our psyche lots of people have related that to um, an important social benefit. So, for example, believing what everyone else believes around you, um, our capacity for religious beliefs. You know, lots of people have sort of uh, 
broken that down as a potentially evolutionary significant trait. It's something, you know, the architecture of our brain that allows for that actually provides advantages to people that, that believed that in the past and so on. So there are all these interesting kind of kind of uh, avenues you can go down. But of course, the, the, the problem is when you're talking about evolution and genetics and stuff, people, what people want is, well, so there's a gene for believing misinformation or there's a gene for believing in a God or something. And it's like, well, no, that's not the way that's not the way it works. You know, our brain is this fantastically complex architecture that's genetically underpinned. But but, you know, disentangling those sorts of things is, is very, very difficult. So we can come up with lots of speculative kind of ideas and lots of ideas that hold hold weight. But nailing it down to specific um, sort of genetics is, is is currently not where we're at, but um, yeah, we're we're understanding more and more about the brain and how it develops and everything, um, you know, on a daily basis. So, who knows where we'll be if we have this conversation in? I mean, people always say, you know, what, what in five years? In five years' time, we'll be having the com same conversation. Where we'll be in five hundred years' time? You know, the th think about that sort of development of of time. I mean, it'll be incredible. Do you know why the brain evolved? to imagine this this isn't something i plan to ask and it might be a very big question but i just i was thinking as you were talking there it seems like a, a departure from any immediate utility right as in our imagination is so abstract that at least tangibly it doesn't seem like it gives us anything and yet we all do it so it's come from somewhere right well i guess without imagination in its broadest sense we're unable to plan so i suppose um and we know that some animals even can can have a planning for the future and and you know, presumably some internal representation of something. So the ability to be able to internalize the environment and imagine or think about what it might be if it were different enables you to then make a plan to make it different, which of course is a, a huge advantage if you're able to do it. If you can imagine that picking up a stone and hitting it against a flint produces a knife, and then you can imagine that that or blade, let's not let's not over-romanticize what those early tools were like. Um, if you can then imagine that you, you could use that, um, suddenly you, you've got the ability to be able to give yourself an advantage. So I think I think you can see how the development of simple imagination or the development of some form of internalization could be could be really significant. Of course, um, the, the human brain has really run with that plan, <laughs> you know, more than more, more as far as we know, um, more than any other organism on the planet. Although, you know, in, in my, my day job, one of the things I study is, is entomology and insects and you know, we're increasingly developing an understanding even of what their internal mental state might be like and and that that might be more complex than we thought although you know <laughs> it was explained to me as look they're not us but they're not a toaster that was the kind of uh, you know they, they got something a little bit more about them than just a sort of a, a piece of machinery uh, but yeah this this idea of being able to internalize and being able to plan yeah it's definitely given us a huge advantage but of course gets us into into all kinds of bother um you know we, we talk i mentioned covid earlier i mean i guess you know, that, that that that's a consequence of our of our great brains and imagination right um we love to talk and we've developed a form of communication that involves you know, literally spitting in each other's faces <laughs> which is fan fabulous if you're a respiratory disease and uh we develop through our wonderful imagination and fabulous ability to plan and these wonderful hands and everything else um the ability to be able to spread very rapidly around the world um, which is which is perfect. I mean, if you, if you were a respiratory virus uh, infesting someone or infecting a, a species which spits in each other's faces and on a regular basis flies thousands of miles around the world to to spit in other people's faces, I mean, it's pretty much perfect. So, yeah, our um, our big brains and imaginations are wonderful, but but do get us into trouble. 
So something we all felt beginning of COVID around that time was a lot of stress, but stress is registered on different levels. And it kind of goes back to how we opened this conversation that there are things which occur, which are just a bit stressful on like a really deep underlying level because we can't quite explain them right the way up to an inbox that's always full or watching the news, for example, is another one, particularly recently, an incredibly stressful experience just opening BBC News. Um, Given that stress is shown to make our judgment worse to cause us to make bad decisions and actually shortens our life at what point in our history was stress a more useful utility and how has it evolved yeah i mean so stress really um is a sort of uh, an expression of the fight or flight response which is our basic physiological response to immediate peril Um, and you can see this throughout almost throughout the animal kingdom um you know, even i think mollusks even have some form of, form of this as well it's a very basal trait and it's the ability to be able to amp things up very very rapidly and and it's a wonderful thing and we've all had that like sudden moment it it it, it enables you to to get out of a out of a situation it doesn't always sometimes it causes people to freeze and and wet themselves and all kinds of other things but in in general, it, it can be a useful trait to get you out out of trouble, and you know animals run away from predators and so on uh, because of it. Um, so that that aspect of of stress, our adrenaline response to it, which causes that physiological uh, response, can be very very useful. And, and evolutionarily, none of us would be here, I would imagine, if our ancestors weren't. You know, I'm quite sure that well, my my grandfather and great grandfather were both sea captains on fishing boats and they both worked considerably before they had children i'm fairly sure neither of them would have made it if they weren't able to <laughs> deal with stressful situations immediately in front of them we're very good at that stuff but what we're not so good at is this constant drip of of modern stresses so things that evoke a very small quantity of that reaction nearly all the time and and that is where most people are putting their money i think on um on where sort of modern day stress is really causing the problem and, and you're right um you know there are studies that, that show that it reduces health i mean it clearly is um is an unpleasant thing to, to live through I and mean, it may well be reducing people's lifespan it can cause um, heart issues and actual physiological changes um those things are coming from this constant drip of stress which we're not when you know we're not we're not um evolved for um the fight or flight response is a sudden like oh my god let's get the hell out of here and pump yourself full of something which is harmful and eventually will kill you but it's really good in small measures so don't worry about it because you'll be fine because that won't happen again for a few months you know or at least a day or whatever um whereas now we're like you know christ another emails come in and oh, i've got this to do and, and, and we're constantly in this kind of very it's it's low level right we're not you know fighting tigers around every corner but that low level dripping is is causing that issue and and we're not we're not built for that and what's more I mean, it's likely that I suppose probably as soon as we start getting together in groups, um, some some sort of stresses would have would have started to appear. But but the modern world is saturated with it. You know, it's there's a, there's a few issues, a few things in the book where I sort of talk about this this idea. I mean, obesity and and sort of drug addiction and stuff like that. But it, it's the modern world is is so concentrated with things that that aren't so good for us and the rate at which they come at us is so furious compared to sort of if you like a natural rate it's it's that which can't we can't cope with individually you know an email comes in it's not a big deal is it you know something happened most problems actually that we're constantly like about if you just sit back and do them one at a time they're not big deal right you know yeah you got tax return to do well just sit down and get it done right you've got this to do well just just have a have a break and get it done the problem is we've always got you know about a million things to do and 
I mean, I've, I've, my car, my car insurance is due, right? And I know I'm going to get, you know, thrashed on the price, but, but it's like, it's never going to raise the rise to the pile because it's, it's, it's an acceptable level, but there's a little bit of stress in the back of me going, I, I'm overpaying for this. I should be sorting it out. You know, pointless. I, either I sort it out or I don't sort it out. But unfortunately, it's one of a whole load of other things that we don't sort out. But but I'm not, you know, about to fall out of a cliff top because I'm trying to hunt a bird on a branch, right? It's, it's not that form of stress, but it, it is the way that we live. And and yeah, it's no it's no good for us, right? It, 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 and we we know it's no good for. Us. I don't think there's anyone that's ever said, you know, what all this massively stressful life that we're living at the moment is amazing. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of um, debate in the medical literature, and there's a lot of debate about you know the extent of the damage it causes and the long term damage and how different people deal with it and worries and worries and all this stuff. But I've never seen anyone that says, you know, it's a brilliant thing. Let's let's all make ourselves more frazzled. So so yeah, I mean, this is this is something we're learning over. Over over the course of our of our you know, the coming decades, how do we deal with this modern saturated life of that that we've made for ourselves? Do you think that stress is relative? So if we take two things we've spoken about so far today, the first being the the comfortable life you have of the house with the roof over your head and the shops just down the road, and the second being the fact that because you don't need to fight a tiger, um, do you think that we feel smaller stresses because we no longer have to face those bigger stresses at least in day-to-day life um yes i I think i think we probably do um when when there's a lot of triviality around us we have a tendency to focus on the triviality not because we like trivial things but because that's what's all around us um yeah i mean an example of that is I, i i i mean used to and now starting to again um go away you know to, to on trips as part of my job and it's often to places like you know south africa or namibia and it's often quite a an involved thing when i'm there i'm <laughs> even though i might be looking after 30 students or trying to deal with something else or you know driving for you know god knows how many miles across across whatever i'm generally as relaxed as i can be even though actually the the the, the situation is, is potentially more stressful and the reason why is because you've just got one thing to think about the thing in front of you you know what are you i i'm not worrying about whether or not i've renewed my you know toaster warranty or whatever because it's 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 an irrelevance for what's in front of me right then and so i think i think we do you know we, we tend to focus on what's what uh, on the bright shiny things that are flashing in front of us and you know computers and phones are great examples of that gambling machines the same thing you know we also get these little dopamine hits when we get involved with this stuff or when we fix something small so it's, it counters that right and so we end up in this kind of strange sort of stress reward kind of territory about things that probably ultimately don't i won't say they don't matter right they do matter because that's the world we live in and we've got to take care of these things but we're often not very good at we're not very good at balancing things up um and that's you know probably again the way that, that our brains are set up where we're good at fixing things that are in front of us that are immediately important you know things that might happen in six months down the line that actually aren't that important <laughs> you know that tends not to be a priority unless unless we've got nothing else to be thinking about so something else you speak about in the book is social media and how that is at odds with lots of what we've evolved to think and do and be i'm going to be talking to johan hari in a couple of weeks so this is a um a topic that i've been deep diving on and he talks in his book stolen focus about how social media and the devices used um, by these social media companies to, for example, release dopamine and get us hooked, um, they draw down on the most absolute fundamental base levels of the human. 
what happened in evolution to to build us in such a way where we are now so pre-exposed to be completely hijacked by 280 characters or some moving images on a phone well i mean a few things i mean first of all we're, we're social creatures and being social creatures means that we have developed both culturally but also you know evolutionarily structures that allow us to get along with other people and also to do more than that to to give us status with other people um, to develop our own relationships with other people in ways that are beneficial to us to develop the way that we see ourselves in relation to other people and so we end up with a lot of a lot of things that psychologists sort of uh, spend a lot of time studying things like in groups and out groups and you know sort of ego and personal status and all of this sort of stuff so so we have all of that in the background but most of the time we, we we're not having outlets for it all the time unless you're a politician or something in which case you're probably in that position because you're driven by you know perhaps a, an extreme need for it but but most of us most of the time you know we, we're not always playing political games or doing whatever but but you know if we need to we can do and and we're all positioning ourselves we're all slightly different forms of ourselves with different people and so on right so there's that in the background and then the second thing of course is we've got sort of deep rooted in our brains as um as you've just mentioned uh, these very basal kind of reward centers right that, that reward us for doing good things which are things like having sex and eating good food and so on because they're things that keep us alive and people that do that an animal i mean we're talking about people organisms that do that have the same sort of receptors right whether you know whether we're a, a lion or a human or a a tamarind monkey or, or whatever we have these dopamine receptors that reward us for good things now when you start lumping all of that together with the ability at any given time to to engage with these sorts of, uh, of things and to get infuriated by it and to want to to have status and to to get everyone likes the likes right you know no one again no one goes onto facebook and goes oh brilliant i did a post and no one engaged with it you know wonderful that's not the way it works and so so we have this kind of want to we, we want to for people to like what we do and if they don't like it we don't mind if there's a bit of a ruck behind it right because we like to engage and be argumentative that's a great way for us to you know develop arguments but of course it can get nastier when i mean i've I'm fairly active on social media and I I've had people say stuff to me on social media that they would never they, they would never say to my face for no other reason than that that's just not the way people behave right but but so we've divorced ourselves from our facial signals and from our normal social cues but we still have the same desires as before to have likes and to get involved and to sort of do all this sort of stuff. But but we've taken away the safeguards, which is normally that, you know, you've got two people standing in front of each other. They're generally not going to come to blows. But on, on Twitter and Facebook, they are essentially doing that because those safeguards are released. And of course, when people are going, oh, yeah, you know, go for it and liking all the stuff, you're getting all the dopamine release as well. So you've got this horrible kind of spiral. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's easy, right? It, it's there all the time. It's uh, we 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 are social creatures and many of us crave social interactions and social interactions can be had at any given time you know i just i picked up my phone casually just then and i've got i've got like five messages that have come in you know two people from overseas someone else from london it's cool stuff right if i wasn't talking to you i'd be i'd be engaging with that and i'd be really getting a hit from that because it's like you know they're asking me stuff and and i haven't seen this guy for a while and, and things like that so it gives us this phenomenal i mean it is an amazing thing that we can do this stuff but and and this is where the difficulties come in some people are not very well geared for it some people can cope with it but some people can't and and that's actually what a lot of the, even the early studies showed is that that there are certain personality types and certain 
you know, the, the ways that some people are set up that just mean that this is not a good way for them to be. And actually, I think probably the vast majority of people, you know, everybody, whether they like to admit it or not, certainly the studies show that everybody feels better if they divorce themselves from social media for a bit. And and that's that's what's been really interesting looking through. Because, I mean, this hasn't been around for that long, right? Facebook started in like 2006 or something. And there were already studies not very long after it came out. Like literally within that year, there was a Dutch study, a Netherlands study that was looking, that was sort of going, hang on a minute, maybe this isn't so good. And they were looking at the psychological effects of it. And, and yeah, so immediately, it wasn't, like, it wasn't like it took us by surprise. We were immediately thinking, hang on a minute, we're, this isn't, we're not really geared for this. Um, you know, now we're getting studies sort of talking about you know, what happens if you take a social media break. Um, I don't think that back in back in the day, you know, in, in Stone Age times or whatever, people would be sat around a fire having a chat of an evening. And I don't think at some point they would have thought, yeah, I don't think I'm going to take a bit of a I'm going to take a break from the campfire. For, maybe, they, maybe they would have done right if things got a bit intense. But I think I think generally it's that it's that saturation right it's that intensity that we have it if we want to we can be there all the time and we get these little rewards that make us want to and that's that's the danger that the, it, it's relatively easy to stop doing it actually but you know for most people but it's always that's that little i'll just go on and see if i got any likes and i think that's that, that's the danger it, it rewards us and it does so in a fairly small way but it builds up a few years ago, actually, just before I started this podcast, the, the reason I eventually started this podcast back in like 2019 is because I took a month away from social media and I was looking to replace it with something. And the two lessons that I learned from that month away from social media, which back up anecdotally, at least just how deep rooted it is, is first, the first few days of coming away from literally a couple of apps on a phone I've never been in recovery from something like a drug addiction, but it was, it wasn't far off how I've heard that described. It was so impulsive and constant. And I'd pick up my phone and scroll to a position where I knew the app was and it wasn't there. And then secondly, that, that kind of disconnect, that stress that I can't quite articulate that I spoke of at the beginning after maybe a week, just completely disappeared. Um, so it's really interesting how that happens. And that's a common experience, actually. That that, that that's a that's what lots of people talk, you know, say when they've when they've given it up. And they'll, you know, so when you went back onto it, um, were you more controlled? Uh, did you did you limit it? How how have you reimmersed yourself in that world safely? Or haven't you? So I'll be honest. <laughs> well, this is the thing. So maybe this just shows how powerful the devices that are used are because for the first few weeks i would uh, let's say twitter and instagram they're the two that seem to hook me the most i'd open the apps and i'd be like what am i on here for i have no interest it was almost like the the pattern had broken and i had no interest in it i'd open it i'd be like okay i don't really care what anyone's saying and yet like a person who had never picked up a phone before three or four weeks in I was back to my old ways. My screen time would creep up. That stress would creep back in. And even sat here right now telling you that it's bad for me and that it's it's not the best use of time. I just, I don't want to say I can't stop it because if I really put the measures in, I could. But I don't have that burning desire within me to overcome the discomfort of stopping it. It's so interesting. No, and I wonder whether that's because it's very, like, like, it's actually very difficult to encapsulate either verbally or in any other way the harm it does in a way so so yeah if you're if you're if you have a, a drug addiction or you're an alcoholic or something or addicted to cigarettes right you can you can put 
in real terms precisely the harm that you're both doing and then avoiding by not doing that activity but i think it's much more difficult with social media because you're right there's that sense of yeah you feel less uneasy and there's that sense but it's very hard to intellectualize and put it down into something that makes sense and i wonder if that is a that is one of the issues you know we know it's there but we can't can't quite put our finger on it so just on this i know in the book you speak a bit about addiction and i know that people love to say oh it's just me i have an addictive personality is there any truth in that have some of us evolved to be more pre-exposed to addiction yeah it seems that i mean some, some people have um uh, more of a tendency than others but but exposed to the right stimulus um you know any anyone anyone can be because of those dopamine receptors and those that that's those sorts of pathways in the brain but there are there is a natural variation in terms of in terms of how those receptors work in different people, which which would give people some, you know, some people more of a tendency than others. But but and, and again, we come back to that idea of potency and concentration. You know, we've we've been using drugs, for example, as a society for a very long time. But 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 over the course of our of our social evolution, we have managed to concentrate natural substances into substances which are phenomenally powerful. So um, you know. I think I think I worked out in the book that you'd have to be chewing about six kilograms of coca leaves. I think it was something like that, sort of in about five seconds to get the equivalent quantity of cocaine from from a from a standard sort of uh, dose of cocaine. So, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it. Um, opium. Uh, people have been smoking opium sap for a long time. Uh, we've got records from Spain. Um, uh, from from caves in Spain, I think from six thousand years ago, maybe more. Um, people have been have been smoking sort of uh, cannabis for for a very long time and other plants. But but now, of course, we've we've managed to, to convert opium sap into sort of uh, morphine and dimorphine, and heroin, and incredibly potent forms of that. We've we've got forms of of cannabis now which have got levels of THC which are which is basically just pointlessly stupid um you know it's everything it's our tendency to do this right early forms of alcohol people would leave something to ferment and it would have a tiny amount of booze in it and people would drink it and get a bit merry and stuff and it would be a, a real kind of probably a very solidifying thing socially and everything but you know that 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 was easy but i can go down the corner shop and you know buy my own weight in, in alcohol for very little again it's that potency and concentration that our our little brains and and all of our lovely reward centers we just we just can't cope with <laughs> like all this all this scrummy stuff you know same with food right so it's um yeah it, it's our we've we've got these wonderful things in modern society that means that we can do all this cool stuff and i can go and buy a bottle of whiskey and a flagon of wine and stuff but you know of course it's 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 <laughs> It's not what our how our bodies are set up to deal with it, and, and you know, that, and that's when we get into trouble. Is there any connection between the fact that I'm assuming here, but it was probably a good trait to have historically to be good at optimizing because optimizing built you a well or caused you to have some sort of um, life sustaining environment which pushed society forward. But now that we live in such a uh, relatively comfortable, easy. Um, and slowly evolving in those senses, at least, um, world. Are we now focusing that exact same part of the human condition on optimizing for fast food, for drugs, for social media, for all of these issues that you speak about? Are they a symptom of the fact that we have always built and we have always pushed forward and now we've almost hit a wall of useful developments and so we just put our collective effort into less useful ones? Yeah, I mean, quite possibly, right? We, we we have this strive, we have this this ambition, and we have the ability to back it up. I mean, it's a 
dangerous it's a dangerous combination right the desire to do it and the ability to follow through um and yeah i guess i i think that is that is one way that we can look at it but of course we've we also live now in a world that is it is yeah, we have like nine billion people on the planet. I, I think we, we, we're approaching that, aren't we? That's the, that's the opt. That, that's the kind of uh, the the level that we're getting up to over the next over the next few decades. We we live in in increasingly connected, but seemingly disconnected ways, in increasingly complex ways, and and maybe actually, you know, we, we lack the we lack the simplicity. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's the key word here, of of our earlier of our earlier selves. Um, you know, we we had we had a, sim a simpler life back back then. Even once we were developing agriculture and things, and and developing sort of small settlements and doing all the cool stuff and building all those early buildings and stuff. Yeah, you know, it was it was simpler. Um, life was simpler, and perhaps that allowed people to have more more time. You know, we, we always talk about leisure time. A lot, a lot of people falsely think that that we've got more leisure time now, and we, and we don't. I mean, when people follow. Hunter-gatherer societies. When people look back into the records of, of of what we were doing before, we don't have more leisure time. Where we, we have less, and the leisure time we do have, we fill with stuff that isn't particularly um, leisurable, if that's a, if that's a word. So yeah, I think um, I, I think there's there's something in that. Yeah, but we're definitely we're, we've definitely lost the simplicity that I think. It, I mean, that's what a lot of people are trying to get back, right? Um, you get retreats where people are living. It's this kind of strange thing, isn't it? It's like the travel industry seems to have this duality where, where it's like extreme luxury and you're going to throw everything at it. And before you know it, you're on a party boat in the middle of nowhere doing God knows what. And, and, and then the alternative is basically, yeah, we'll put you in a room and there'll be no one there and you'll have like, you know, a Hessian like mat to lie on and it'll be amazing. And you can pay us loads of money. <laughs> it's like, and I think that kind of reflects our, our sort of duality. And I think, and then that's another thing that we, that we struggle with is that we want, we want all the shiny things, right? but when we have them, it doesn't necessarily make us happy. So then we want the basic things and we do that for a bit. And we're like, well, this is nice, but you know, I miss my comfortable pillow and stuff. And then we end up back in the middle again, wanting the shiny things again. And we always seem to sort of buck backwards and forwards and that never quite find the, the happy medium that we want to, but, but we still search for it. Right. And I think, yeah, on the whole, of course, most people, I mean, I called the book Unfit for Purpose, but I think quite early on in the book, I sort of say, look, you know, clearly <laughs> one of our problems is that we're very fit for purpose. Um, we're very good at what we do, but but we're not always very happy about the way that we do it. And I think that's that is something we're going to have to learn to, I, I guess, learn to live with, um, but grow up about. And, and that's going to be part of our shifting society. But who knows? You know, maybe we're going to get hit by another revolution. You know, it took us thousands of years to develop agriculture. Then it took us a fair few thousand years to develop sort of industry then it took only a few hundred years to develop inf information these things are all telescoping down so what will be the next what will be the next revolution that will sideswipe us off our uh, off our track who knows so we're having this conversation right now in the context of what we're seeing on social media and what we're seeing on the news in ukraine um now this episode isn't out for a few weeks so hopefully what i'm about to say is redundant right hopefully there has been at least some sort of solution to tone down the violence being used against ukraine right now but i want to pose to you a question that you ask in the book in the context of this conflict that the world is watching and that is are we evolved to be violent well this this was a really interesting chapter to write and quite a difficult chapter actually and um for, for a number of reasons i mean first of all it's a, it's a difficult topic right from a personal perspective um where all of us capable of 
of being violent. We're all of us physically capable of inflicting harm on others. And, and certainly when we were children, we did. Um, I, I don't think there'll be a single child hasn't done something to another child at some point, right? We're, none of us are angels, but we, but, but we come out of that, most of us, because of societal limits and also perhaps personal limits on what we do. But all of that gets horribly mixed up. So it becomes quite difficult to say that we are inherently violent or, or that we are violent because the reality is we're not. Yeah, most of the time, most of us go around not living in fear of violence or inflicting violence on others. That's not to say that some people don't live in constant fear of violence, and it's not to say that some people aren't constantly violent. Clearly, those two things are true. However, overall, most of us have found some kind of happy medium with the, the, the devil inside us that, that hold us back from being violent. Um, so that's sort of one step side of it. But the other side is, is sort of, and that would be an evolutionary sort of perspective. And people talk about sort of different modules in the brain that control these things and impulse control and so on, because you know, you're not going to live very long in, a, in any society if you're going around lumping, taking lumps out of each other, right? Um, so there's always that. But of course, the, you know, violence can solve problems. I mean, it can create problems, but if we, if we, if we sort of, zoom back from kind of uh, a more modern interpretation of, of doing it if if you know your neighbor's causing you an issue well if you kill your neighbor the issue disappears right so if you take that to a sort of bigger extreme if you're a society and the society next door is something you want and they're not willing to give it to you or they're doing something that you don't like if you remove that society then you tank over and, and it's all rosy so it's kind of easy to see how sort of inherently violent tendencies or all the ability and potential to do violence let, let's look at it that way could then become expressed for, within a group and that is essentially the beginnings of the notion of war and unfortunately human history has been you know, beset with with war um the last uh, the last of the 60 or 70 years in, in europe have been unusual in the sense that it's been relatively peaceful uh that certainly wasn't the case even in recent times and we, we can see evidence from that throughout history right so the question then is, are we becoming less violent as a society? Um, that's not through evolution, but are we? Are we? Are our society structures becoming better? And what was really interesting is that you can find very, very um, convincing and learned works that say, no, we're not. And you can find very convincing and learned works that say, yes, yes, we are. And then you can find equally convincing uh, learned works that say, no, we're about the same. <laughs> so, it's, it, and a lot of it depends on how you define it and how you measure it and how you look at it and the fact that it's a complex thing. So. Are we becoming more violent or less violent? That that is a that is a question that's open to uh, open to interpretation. Are we capable of violence? Quite clearly, we are. Are we capable of constraining and confining that violence? Quite clearly, we are. Um, you know what we're seeing playing out in in sort of Ukraine at the moment, I suppose, is an expression of state violence, which you know many people would argue is is an expression of the violent tendencies of a single individual, um, which is interesting because now you have people acting out violence and being allowed to act. You know, war is basically state-sanctioned violence, right? If, if you want to go out and kill someone in everyday society, you will, if you get caught for it, be punished for it. It is not state-sanctioned. But during times of war, as long as you follow certain rules, which are in some cases written down, you know, codes of conduct, then you, then you are state-sanctioned to go and, and commit violence. So that is an interesting... An interesting kind of aspect of, of of the human psyche, but but what we're seeing, of course, in in Ukraine is not just an expression of violence, but what we're also seeing is the expression, I suppose, of our better part, 
Um, so yeah, um, people are attacking Ukraine and you know, Russia is attacking Ukraine and Ukraine is defending itself. And as a consequence of that, there is incredible violence. But what we're also seeing is incredible charity, incredible humanitarianism from across the world, incredible empathy, um, which I guess the hope is and, and experience teaches us in the long term will win out. You know, wars don't go on forever. Um, but in the short term, and that depends on how you want to measure it, you know, that, that violent tendency, our ability to do violence, linked, of course, with our brains, because warfare is really a technological achievement more than anything else, um, allow, allow huge amounts of suffering to be meted out to people on a seemingly minute by minute basis at the moment. So it is, um, yeah, it is, it is difficult. And you've got this kind of state yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of societal thing, but actually more than that, it's a state issue. So it becomes a political sort of boundary issue, which is something that we've totally created. Yeah, you don't see sort of, that's, that's, that's not the way that, that you know, the world is divided up like that. We've, we've invented that way of doing things. And, and, you know, that then becomes an expression, not of the people within that, in the case of, of sort of autocracies like, like Russia, but of, of individuals. And, you know, the, if, if those states are a reflection of those individuals, then what we have to say is that, that dictators are generally violent people um, because dictatorships are usually associated with violence meted out either to their own people, usually as forms of state control or to, or to other people as forms of state expansion. So it's, um, yeah, all of those things sort of lump in, but we, we can't sort of we, we can't really blame evolution for that necessarily. Um, I, I think actually what, what, what you see in sort of normal society, if you like, a well-functioning society is is our ability to be able to constrain and confine our violence. And, and we may have violent thoughts, right? um, you know, but but we very rarely actually in reality, very rarely convert them into actions. It's um, yeah, I, I would say, if anything, humans are surprisingly not violent given our tendencies but when you look across the mammals so violence violence is a, is a trait in animals and, and actually killing members of your own species people often go humans are the only animals that kill members of their own species absolute cobblers right <laughs> complete twaddle um big survey of the mammals i think 44 percent of, of mammal families that were looked at showed uh violence and, and killing i mean ex extreme expressions of violence towards members of their own species and the conclusion of that paper was the only reason why it wasn't higher was because people hadn't studied it and a load of other things right so so it's not uncommon but we are about seven times more violent than you would expect when you look across the sort of evolutionary pattern and you look at close relatives and all of this you go okay well humans should be this violent we're actually much more violent and that well that was based on sort of uh evidence of kind of uh, intra-specific intra killing, so murder, essentially, and other forms of, of killing. Um, but, you know, maybe that's the, the, that could well be linked to our very close societal benefits of violence in the past um, and, and, and the technology. We're able to, you know, one animal facing up to another animal and killing it can kill one animal, whereas one human being with a bomb or with a weapon or you know with with some form of technological support can kill many more so we do have the option i suppose of, of being more violent but yeah it's it's um it, it's a very interesting question that will rumble on i mean i don't think we'll ever get i don't think people will ever tire of of discussing our evolutionary history and makeup in respect to, to violence and then trying to link that through to society and, and and sort of coming up against brick walls with with how far we can go is part of the difficulty reconciling that answer the fact that there's almost a paradox here, right? Again, I'm assuming, but I assume that being good at violence 
uh, is a plus point of evolutionary fitness because if you're up against somebody who wants to kill you and you can kill them, well, then your genes are going to continue. But then also, evidently, we can't be that violent. We can't be that um, prone towards action because there are getting on for nine billion of us. Is that is that almost the, the crux of the issue here, that there is this massive paradox that we seem to be good at violence, but also good at resisting violence? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you're right. It's, it's, it's a complete sort of uh, tumultuous duality, really, because... There are undoubtedly times in, a, in our past where violence would have been a hugely beneficial trait. Um, there are times in our present where, where the ability to be violent and, and to be able to take those actions brings benefit beyond sort of, uh, you know, self-defense would be a, a good example, um, which keys into the kind of flight or fight response. Um, and we are able to, you know, we are, people often sort of think of humans as being these weak and puny individuals with bad senses and stuff we are incredible generalists and we're very well put together we're we're able to and and, and we can use weapons and we can use our environment and and it gives us an ability to 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 be incredibly violent there is an an, an able-bodied person who is more or less you know regular size and stuff can 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 easily kill someone else and and that, that's what that's what happens but equally other people can defend themselves so yeah there is this there is this kind of duality between between the fact we can and we have and we do and the fact that most of us don't and, and i think that's it's much a much more interesting question to ask is not you know are we more violent or why are we violent but actually why are we not more violent and and why are we actually predominantly peaceful and and the reality is that we all do better society functions better. we, we have better lives we we function more you can't function in a you know no one's no one's having quality of life if you're constantly you know involved in warfare and and, and violence and turmoil it's not it's not a pleasant place to be um Whereas, whereas the life that we can build ourselves by being peaceful and by getting along and cooperating is a much better place to be. Um, you know, it's a simplistic analysis, but it, basically that, that's where we are, isn't it? So something that definitely surprised me and I think surprised the world is the willingness of everyday Ukrainians who maybe last week were, I don't know, a takeaway delivery driver to suddenly find it within themselves to have the courage to become warriors of sorts right out of nowhere something has gone off within them because of the fight or flight mechanism that has turned them into completely willing and able fighters and i was especially on the first day of that when i was i was watching these everyday people and trying to uh, through some weird empathy imagine myself in that situation i don't think and I say this with the benefit of being in a non-war-torn country in a nice office, but I don't think that I could do that. But is it correct to say that in the right circumstances, we are all evolved to almost have a, a power and an intent far beyond what we actually think we're capable of, just because we haven't been asked to call upon it? I mean, quite potentially, yes. But we also have to, to, to think about about what's actually happening because, you know, at the moment, I, I just saw a headline that, that came about an hour ago that, that more than a million people are fleeing Ukraine. Um, so, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, some people are taking up arms and, and they are volunteering. And they're, I mean, I, I, there was an interview with someone the other day on the radio who was, uh, she, I think she was a, a she, she ran a, um, a, a women's um, clothing shop. Uh, but she was now essentially a quartermaster, um, giving out giving out weapons to whoever came up, and, and people were just wandering up on the streets and, and getting hold of guns. Um, you know, those people wanted to defend their their homes and their country against against an aggressor. However, at the same time, 
there were people who were cowering in basements, which is, you know, the word cowering, unfortunately, has a pejorative term. I don't mean it that way. That That is a that is a sensible way to behave in those situations. And there were other people who were getting into vehicles and, and driving towards the Polish border. Another sensible response. So I think um, we do tend to get sort of uh, swayed a little bit, I think, by by sort of what seemed like more extreme and sort of, I guess, what we would perceive as more heroic responses, but actually protecting your family, removing yourself from the situation and doing what you tell is, is, is equally heroic in those situations. So it is um, it's a tricky one. But yeah, certainly some some people have unleashed in them, you know, have unlocked in, in them a, a, a hidden a hidden ability to be able to do those things. And that's yeah, that's a, an interesting aspect of the of the human psyche, but it, but it's not it's not universal. I, I don't think you know as we can see in these situations, I don't think everybody is necessarily jumping into those into those situations to do that. Different people respond differently in different ways, depending on their personal situation as well. Um, I would respond differently now with children than I would have done say twenty years ago without. You know, it's those sorts of things that can be difficult for us because we have. I suppose it goes back to the, what we how we open the, the conversation, right? We have complex lives. Um, we are complex beings in terms of, of, of our environments and our situations. And, and that all comes to play when, it, when, when you know, the brown stuff hits the fan, which, which it has done. So I might be here making a link that doesn't exist, but if there is a link here, you are the man to ask, right? So we've been seeing for the last few years headlines about the declining birth rate across the globe that seems to be this fairly universal thing. Now, given that evolutionary fitness is a measure of how likely we are to reproduce, is the fact that we are unfit for purpose playing any role whatsoever in the falling of the birth rate? Well, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? So so you, you have to wonder what's driving a de the, the decline that we're seeing. So if that decline is being driven by some physical process, people are becoming less fertile, then then we could be suggesting that, that you know, maybe if that's being underdriven by a genetic effect, is that some evolutionary thing? Almost certainly not, but it's it's an interesting question to ask. Is it environmental? Have we created a society, for example, where we're eating uh, in such a way that that it reduces our sperm count or it stops ovulation? Um, possibly. Um, there are certainly aspects of that. Uh, obesity, which is which is rife, uh, has has knock on effects to fertility and things. So we could make some sort of argument that, that we've made ourselves unfit for purpose in that respect. But but actually, what we also see in, in the, the decline of birth rates is, is people making conscious decisions not to have children. Um, because of because of the world, either because of the state of the world. So in other words, they, they don't they don't want to bring more lives into the world because it's not a good place. To, you know, they don't feel it's a good place to be. There's that argument, which you see expressed quite frequently. Um, but there's also the the fact that people are having very interesting and fulfilled lives. Then they don't feel the need to have children, particularly I mean, at the time where they're able to have children, whether whether or not whether or not they will feel that they've missed out when they're in their fifties or whatever, or you know, forties or whatever, is is a is a different question. But they are taking the decision to to not have children as a conscious decision because they don't they don't feel they need them, they don't want the burden of them, or they don't want they don't want to change the way that they live. And and you know, having had children, I can, I can see their point, right? Um, <laughs> so, so it seems like a valid point to me. So it's uh, you know, we, we we get these different kind of effects, but um, but yes, yeah, certainly, if we've if we've made if if we've created societies where we've got access to so much food that we're becoming obese to the extent where where we're declining, you know, we're we're becoming less fertile, um, or if we spend so long 
I mean, there's the other thing is maybe, maybe people lack the opportunity to have children because they're not forming relationships in which they can have children, for example, um, because they spend too much time on Facebook or Twitter um, or, or whatever else. You know, again, it's a bit of a stretch, right? But there's probably there's probably some aspect of that. I mean, I, I, I know people that that will happily spend all weekend sat in front of, you know, gaming and stuff they wouldn't whereas you know they're not out meeting people that they might have children with so i guess you can make those sorts of side arguments but but yeah there's um i mean there are other arguments too of course so declining birth rate across the world is largely because we get lots of countries going through what's called the demographic transition where um countries go from populations go from having very high birth rates and very high death rates to then having lower death rates but still high birth rates so you end up with population increases like we're seeing in, in east africa for example and then and then you move through this demographic transition into having low birth rates and low death rates which are, are caused by a mixture of, of medication uh, good medicine um and sort of uh, uh developed society and family planning and education and so on so we're seeing countries move through that demographic transition more so we are seeing a slowing down of the of the birth rate and and in fact if you look at, at predictions of sort of population human population we are we are reaching you know hopefully uh reaching that plateau which which is which is good <coughs> because of course we do live on a finite planet with um finite resources that we're already um well tanning quite hard i think would be a reasonable way to put it so you know we, we need we need to reduce our we need to reduce our footprint on the earth and we'll do that technologically but we'll also do it by um perhaps by having by, by being a bit fewer but but i don't think um it's, it's an interesting argument i often have this with with people where they'll talk about oh, all the problems of the world you know con with my conservation scientist hat on you know people go all oh, the problems of conservation are caused by too many people and it's like well actually they're not they're caused by too much consumption. Um, it's you know, the, the, the countries that you're talking about that are often um, you know areas that have lots of, of interesting wildlife and habitats are often quite sparsely populated. The problem is that that you know, one person there uses about forty times the amount of resource than than one person here. Um, so yeah, I would I would I would say to people if they want to go down that uh, that line, there's a simple answer which is well you first, uh, you can reduce the problem by one if that's what you want, uh, or you know we we need to address consumption. Um, but yeah, so but I'm, I'm getting uh, I'm getting off topic here. But yeah, so I think uh, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? If we've made ourselves if we've made ourselves through our modern society less able to have offspring for whatever reasons, whether it's because we've convinced ourselves we don't want to because we've created a world we don't like, or we've removed the opportunity from ourselves because we filled our lives with distractions that prevent us from from doing what's needed, or um, or if we've ended up medically unfit to have children, it's <laughs> yeah that that would be the ultimate expression, I guess, of uh, of of being unfit for purpose. So to end, I want to ask you to make the prediction of all predictions as somebody in your position, which is that we, we've looked back a lot today, right? We've found the, the root causes of some of our behaviours and problems. But as we know, evolution takes a bloody long time to show its head. And so with everything we know about how we're potentially unprepared for the current world we live in, if you were to take a bet on the next significant uh, trait, which is evolved sufficiently to the point where it's detectable in human history at some point in the future what do you think will next evolve to do or be oh right well i i, I think uh that that is a that that is a tricky question um probably most of the traits we'll be able to measure i guess may, may be negative in in terms of not not necessarily great so we have such good medical support for so many different things now that that characteristics which may have become may have not um 
succeeded genetically will get a chance to because because we can treat the effects of them and stuff. So we, we might well be seeing, I guess we could see more of that. I, I think what we'll see, though, I, I, I don't think you know, my, my prediction is not going to be a genetic or evolutionary prediction. I, I'm going to make a prediction that we're going to over the next 20 or 30 years. I think the notion of taking care of ourselves I think we'll go. It's already gone from being quite niche and fringe and a bit like, well, you don't want to be taking care of yourself. You know, what, what's wrong with you taking care of yourself um, to, to kind of like, you know, now people are going, oh, maybe maybe I should be taking care of my mental health a bit more. I, I think we are going to see and we're already seeing, but I think we're going to really see it taking off in the next sort of few decades that that we take this stuff much more seriously and that as a society, we we, we understand much more that happiness you know, is uh, is not something that's some optional thing because you've you know you've worked 15 hours down the pit and now you're allowed to go to the pub for three three minutes. You know, it, it should be it should be a, an it should be something we're aspiring to. We are an incredible species. We can achieve incredible things, but we don't do that if we're mired in 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 misery. And I think what we might see is is, is people taking that much more seriously and embedding it much more in society that we we take care of things like mental health we accept and understand that these things are important and we 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 have societal structures in place to actually move us towards the the, the situation where they're being where they're being sorted out and, and we're not there yet let's be honest we're not and and i think i think that's that will be our next big transition um taking care of ourselves better i hope so you know i hope so but but we'll see there's not a lot of evidence for it right now, but you know, history is a long game, right? And and like he said, evolution is a long game, right? Human history is a pretty long game too. And and I think, yeah, we, we it will be it will be fascinating, but unlikely that we have this conversation in a hundred years' time. Um, but if we do, I hope that that we'll be having it with a much more developed and mature society that's able to actually look after the people that are in it much better than we have done it's a positive place to end adam i'm going to make sure that unfit for purpose is linked below in the show notes um if people want to go and find you elsewhere um i know that you you tweet quite a bit which i enjoy where else can people go and find you um, yeah, so Adam Hart Science on Twitter. Um, I do have an Instagram account. I'm not very good at using it, um, but it's Adam Hart Science. But I'm getting better um, at using it. I had a few people follow me over from Twitter who were um, who were lumping abuse on me. So <laughs> I, I sort of ignored it for a bit, but I think that's disappeared now. So I'll start using that more. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, I'm Professor of Science Communication at the University of Gloucestershire. We teach all kinds of stuff, evolution, behaviour, animal biology, biology and ecology, basically, but uh, all kinds of other bits and pieces. Uh, linked into linked into my other interests, which which range from yeah, as I say, uh, entomology to uh, African conservation and ecology. So that's um, that's where, where where you can find me most times. Yeah, amazing, Adam. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.